Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. And joining us today is Gina Delvac. Hey. <laughs> on this week's agenda, we're revisiting our businesswoman special with updates on how we make the pod and what goes into the business of Call Your Girlfriend, LLC. A main reason why we wanted to revisit our businesswoman special this week is because of some other businesswomen we love, our pals Claire Mazer and Erica Cerullo of Of A Kind, who have a brand new book out called Workwife. This is a great question. Existential question. It's true. How? how? And why? I, <laughs> I mean, not just like how do we make it. I do feel like how do we make the money is at times less transparent. Like recently, I had a conversation with someone who was genuinely shocked by the fact that we are not podcast millionaires. <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing wrong? I mean, I mean I'm going to tell you everything we're doing wrong in five seconds. Go for it. You want to hit the... the the critique of our, like, budget right now? I mean, the critique is mostly that we're not, like, not interesting, like, white dudes. I think that that's true. Wow. But that's a very easy, that's, like, an easy critique. So I Are you talking about any there. men in particular? Um, yeah, do you want me to name all of them? <laughs> Ten million of them right now. First of all, I think that, like, people just don't understand money in general. So whenever somebody's like, what, you're not making millions from a podcast? I'm like, nobody's making millions from a podcast. Relax. Like, three people uh, are. Yeah, like, three people. But that's generally not how money works in the world. That's one thing. But I also think that it is true that within the money that is distributed in our industry, it's not distributed equally. That's my hot take. <laughs> well, I'm going to do a, a little bit of on the last episode, the last time we had a conversation about our business for the podcast. Previously on Businesswoman Special. <laughs> we had successfully gotten ad representation. We were selling ads on the show. I think we had been on tour, right? We'd done a few yeah. live shows, and we were perhaps selling some merch. We were kind of at the beginning of a lot of different revenue streams and parts of our business. And I think mostly we talked about the fact that it took a long time from when we first started making this podcast to when we started making any money from it. And part of that journey was, like, accepting that what we had done was, in fact, start a business together. So that's, that's like, the headline summary. Accidental business. Accidental <laughs> business owners is, like, the subtitle. <laughs> so, right. So then the question is, we three who are now openly acknowledging that we are, in fact, in a business partnership, what has been going on? <laughs> I would say that, like, structurally, very few things have changed. So if you're somebody who listens every week, you get a show every week, it gets done the same way. Like, that part is, like, pretty rote. There are ads um, on it. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, there are ads on it. The thing is the thing. Um, <laughs> well, the podcast is still the, the center of the business. Right. I think that a couple of things have changed. We've introduced some um, sponsored episodes that we've done on a not Friday basis. Like, Friday's the day that the show drops. They're very well branded as, like, Spawn. The whole thing is, you know, like, it's one big ad for a thing. And we have gone on tour again. We have done more merchandise. We have, you know, like, 
we've learned more about being business ladies. It's both been infuriating and uh, very rewarding and fun. Also, the team has grown. Shout out to Destry, our associate producer. Hey! Yeah, and Carly Knowles has been expanding our range and lines of merch. So I think we'd done some merch the last time we talked, but she's really been at the forefront of figuring out all the cool products that you see stocked in the shop. Yeah, and Sophie Carter-Khan is coming on board to do um, some social stuff. So Right, and Laura, Laura Bertacci is also helping with some admin things, too. So we have this— There's this, a team. There's a team. <laughs> there like, actually, we just realized there's a team. Oh, my God. This is why we do these episodes. <laughs> there's a team. We have a touring agent. Shout out to Doug. Wow. There's totally a team. Like, CYG is just not the three of us in our underwear texting each other anymore. <laughs> well, let's talk about, like, because you stopped on tour there, maybe we can talk a little bit about— touring and whether it is the mega moneymaker that it is made out to be, for example, like in the music business. Like, is that our experience? <laughs> I'm like, is Loaded that question. True? Is that true? Well, you know, like, as you know, podcasting is just like rapping. Um, so, you know, you don't get rich off of the music. You get rich off of touring and merchandise. At least that's what I've been told by the rappers I know. Um, and by rappers, I mean the internet. So... I, you know, the thing about touring that's interesting is that, uh, like, we, like, I will be very honest in that, like, in my hierarchy of, like, things that we do, it is not my favorite thing. It's hard. Um, it's very hard. It's hard on the, you know, like, it's hard on the schedule in that you actually just have to, like, leave your house and go places. It's hard on the anxiety in that you have to, like, be around people. I have so much respect for people who are on the road now. I, you know, I was always like, oh, like, this seems interesting and fun. And I'm like, oh, this is actually, like, hero status. Like, you're you're doing something that is, like, actually very hard. I would say that, like, most podcasts are pushed to do live. Like, everybody is getting pushed into the space of, like, live performance all the time. And, Who's uh, pushing? The networks and the agents are all telling you that it is, like, worth doing. And also, like, from a purely selfish standpoint, like, we are pushing ourselves because we want to meet our audience. It's the only, you know, like, we make a show at home. So (laughs) in terms of, like, getting any kind of interaction and feedback, um, you know, outside of, like, the internet, this is the one way to do it. But, you know, like, from the financial piece of it is that, like, it is true that at least, like, we run a tour that is profitable, we like we're a very bare bones tour. Like we're not taking, you know, like we're not taking equipment with us. We're not like you know. There's not like the the Amina and Ann couch. <laughs> there's one day, inshallah. But you know what I mean. Like in terms of like props, there is nothing. I leave my tr- drum like, kit at home. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Gina. Gina does the most, <laughs> and we do the least. But you know what I mean. I think that like in terms of like what it's a pretty lean operation. You know, and that's not true for like a lot of performing um for a lot of performing acts like even podcasts right we do travel to a standard that we're happy at nobody's like sleeping on a floor um but nobody's sleeping in a yeah, five-star what, hotel what do we spend money on on tour we spend a ton of money flying we spend a lot of money on accommodation because we have some things that are deal breakers for us i.e. like everybody has to have a door that shuts. That's not true when I talk to a lot of my musician friends who are mm-hmm. on the road all the time. It's like when I hear like the how they're traveling, I'm just like, you are living like this? This yeah. is wild. <laughs> Your girls are not stacked three high on someone's couch. <laughs> right. 
Well, and in the interest of transparency, if there are other podcasters or people who are thinking about touring who don't have the traditional musician model, I think the other big cost, aside from our accommodations, travel and food, was the fees that you pay, that like there are so many people involved in being in a venue. If you are lucky enough to have a touring agent who helps set everything up like we did, that's a percentage. There are promoters who have fees. There are facility fees. There are, is, are you going to have to pay to sell your merch in this place? And that's like a really complicated business that was interesting to see the inside of. And I really learned why a touring manager is a job, even for an operation of our size, where it's not like we're moving massive of equipment. It's not like we're unruly talent who has to be like dragged by the hair hung over from one city to the next but even so there are just so many little logistical things so shout out to all the tour managers out there really see uh what the job is that you do and it's a real one what else has changed since our last businesswoman special episode i mean we're millionaires now oh my so. god stop <laughs> perpetuating the myth of podcast millionaires <laughs> maybe that's what this episode is called <laughs> What did Amina learn in Silicon Valley? Inflate I mean, your net worth. <laughs> you know, now that I'm a millionaire, I overvalued. Just, I feel definitely overvalued. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, now that I'm a millionaire, I just I understand what the rich people complain about. <laughs> um, what have you learned uh, since the last time we went on tour, Anne? Tell me. Well, I think that some of it not it's not since tour so much as since the last time we talked about this. The fact that. There are now more people involved, none of whom are employees. Like the three of us are the only, um, you know, people who are invested in this thing the way that at at a level that I would say is employee-like. We've learned a lot about managing our 1099 team, working internally like the three of us to figure out how and when we bring on other people to support us. How does that management work? And how much do we pay them? I mean, I think, like, that is something that could potentially be very difficult with in our situation, which is that we are not all coming into an office to work together every day. It is not like a traditional job where there's an HR department and we, you know, write up a job description and someone comes in for an interview and then we see them every day at work. It just is way more small scale than that. And so given that I don't have any experience or hadn't before this, that has been interesting. And setting expectations and trying to be a essentially a fair freelance boss. Right. Do we have some fair freelance rules? Like, do we have, do we have practices that we do that are codified? Anyone who does labor for us makes $25 an hour or more. That's a practice we have. Love it. Mm-hmm. Um, the CYG minimum wage is $25 an hour. <laughs> this is why we're not millionaires. P.S. <laughs> um, it goes up from there. Yeah. That's one. I mean, we are slow, I will say that, when it comes to yeah. making any decision related to, especially, I think, people who are part of our team. We are slow. Yeah. But partly because we do generally joint like consensus decision making. Given our schedules and multiple activities, that frequently means like 48-hour turnaround on communications. At I mean, it's more than other activities, though. I think that the thing that is true is that this business is still no, none of our like core business. Certainly none of our sole enterprise. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like everybody here has two LLCs. 
<laughs> at least, this at is, least. This is everyone's like side piece LLC. Exactly. Yeah. This is the LLC I cheat on my LLC with. So. <laughs> like, this is what's going on. But I do think that that's part of it, right? That a thing that we generally do well, or at least for me as an owner of this LLC, like, I, like let's ask the contractors, is that I like our company culture. I like it because I like get to set the tone of it. But generally, like also as somebody who has been like, ill in this company and as somebody who has had like a lot of health challenges um you know this has been a good place for me to work (laughs) our company culture is ask for what you need yeah you know what i mean like i must say like this company has treated me better than my own company (laughs) so that's like that's the thing that's not lost on me but yeah Mm. Well, I get, like I have another question. It's just for I us. Don't know. Yeah, I have a question for you guys. Like, why are we so dedicated to doing these like transparency episodes? I can't think of like other podcasts that are telling me like what's going on inside of them. And so I find it interesting that this is another value that we have. Um, Reporting back to the people that we are, in fact, all three still friends. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Um we are all still friends. I know. That makes me happy. Some might even say better friends. Oh. But you know what I mean? I'm like, why Like, why is it something that is that is so important? I mean, I always want more info as a consumer. Like, it, it always drives me crazy that on every app I use or everything I give my dollars to, I can't see exactly the breakdown and, like, the policies and everything, you know? I mean, I like being open with our listeners of this is... This is why we make some of the choices we make. And um, I'm just someone who always wants more info. That's why I like to do it. I think there's really a dearth of information, too. Like, this is podcasting is such a closed system. It's hard to Google, like, what (laughs) is the going rate for things? How much are people really getting paid? Like, you know, for example, we are often asked for negotiation advice. I think all three of us in our personal lives and publicly, right? And so one of those things that you always say, let's say you're in a corporate job, is like, you're asking for a raise, go armed with like, this is the going rate and range for this job category. And here's why I'm qualified to exist on this part of the spectrum. And when there's so little information out there, it's so hard to make that case to people. And I think that there have been lots of examples, we won't name names, of exploitation in this industry on the basis that this industry being radio and podcasting, that there aren't clear senses of who's making how much, how they spend it, where it goes. And so I think that's part of our, one of our values of like, busting up some of those occluded spaces that allow people with more power and more privilege to thrive. Okay, so how much do we make per episode? It's a range. I would say that the floor probably right now for us is like around $5,000, right? Like, I think that's a fair thing to say. Um, Pre-split. Yes. So we also split this money with our advertising partner. The people Um, selling the ads for us. Yes, the people who sell the ads. Which I will say, I was talking to some baby podcasters recently, and they were telling me that their split with the person who was selling their ads was Mm 80-20. Mm-hmm. So 80, no, 80% for the ad network, Whoa. 20% for them. Ooh. And that, like, I, <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but I, like, very few things have shocked me in this, like, era of exploitation of uh, work that we do. 
that split should be the reverse. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that, like, a lot of people don't know that either. It's like, if you make the product, you should take the bulk of the money home. Hello. So anyway, yes, the floor for us is, like, somewhere around 5K, and it has, like, depending on the CPM or the whatever, has also been, like, much higher than that. What's but, yeah. a CPM? Yeah, so CPM is the cost per thousand impression. So it's just to say that one of the reasons that you hear so many podcasters say, rate, like, subscribe, tell your friends, like the extreme (laughs) evangelism is because if you sell ads, the number of listeners is the metric by which the sales teams are kind of guaranteeing how much play a certain person, a certain advertiser is going to have. It's also one of the reasons that you hear so many like enter code X is not only to give you a discount, but is what's called direct response in this ad industry. Basically, they're tracking how many people are really buying shit based on hearing this particular ad. Mm-hmm. It's also true, though, that like all of the metrics are pretty much snake oil. You know, it's like if you... They're a little if, better than they used to be. They're better than they used to be, but they also mean absolutely nothing. If you're somebody like me who used to work in marketing... If I was still working the job that I was working and somebody came to me and was like, hi, I want to buy an ad on a podcast, that would be a really hard sell for me. (laughs) I do think that it's helpful to remember that an ad model is a choice and it's a choice that we reconsider all the time and think about. And it's not lost on us that there are a few big things within podcasting that are kind of changing um, or, you know, maybe maybe some some faster than others, including the fact that uh, you may have noticed there are lots and lots and lots more podcasts than when we started doing this five years ago. There's a lot more people competing for listener ears. There are more listeners than in the past, but the ratio has not kind of kept pace. Right. Right. There are more listeners, but there are many, 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 many more podcasts. Oh, thank you, my forever editor. Um, that's exactly that's exactly it. And so as we start to think about that is like, you know, the easiest way to put it is like in 2014, there were not that many shows where two women with a generally feminist outlook on the world were talking about politics and culture. Like that there were not many. Now there are many. And so um, we have to start thinking about, okay, like as more and more people produce podcasts, which I think is continuing to happen because like you say, Gina, there's this perception of more access to advertising money as advertisers and agencies get hip to the fact that podcasts exist. We have to start thinking about like, hey, is it a better idea to make a product that appeals to our core listeners, a smaller group um, that maybe they pay for directly in addition to the podcast that everyone listens to that's that's funded by advertising or thinking about our potential for forever growing the number of listeners in different terms given changes in the industry. Is that a fair way to put it? Are you hinting at a membership program or fan support model we might see in the future, Anne? Is this is news to me? <laughs> we already broke the Sophie news on the show this week. I feel like, yeah. Well, I mean, this is something that we have historically not been into—the idea of somehow offering something that is available to people who've paid us. We've kind of kept it all. Everyone can hear the same podcast for free ninety-nine. But we're thinking about it. Fair enough. I don't know. That's yeah. really the most transparent way to put that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. that's really... Oh, I love this transparency on here. <laughs> I am, I am. <laughs> Do you? 
I love it. I love it. You know, like the other thing I think that it's a misconception. I think that a lot of people have like when they approach us about advice is that we're kind of just like fucking around and we're doing, you know, like it's just this like three girls, just like three gals doing what they love. And like, my God, can you believe they know how to like, you know, they can talk into a microphone and sound can comes you out. Believe? And can you believe it? And they saw ads. It's like, no, like this shit is hard work. Like it's it's hard work. And we're literally like we like we run a small media company. Like that's true. And and, you know, and five years ago, like the space was just not a professional space. And so when you're thinking about like, I want to break into the space it is a completely different calculus than we had to make. We're actually not the go-to people for, I want to make a show and I want it to be big. I was like, actually, like, we... We um, don't have experience in yeah, that. Yeah, we don't have experience in that at all. <laughs> we grew and, with the industry, sorry. And also, yeah, we grew with the... Uh, you know, we, like, grew alongside an industry that just... that professionalized in a way that we did not. Um, <laughs> but also, we... Like, we like we are. We're a weird anomaly in this water. And so, a lot of times, I'm just like, you know, you're... Your best bet actually is to ask somebody else. And a lot of times those somebody else's are the people who are actually not very transparent. And so, mm, right. you know, like that's mm. the actual problem. So right. it's uh, everything that we're telling you is great. Like take it with a ginormous <laughs> grain of salt. But um, if you're trying to be a podcast millionaire, uh, the people who will give you that advice are the people that like are not transparent about how their businesses work. I think it's a problem when all companies are not transparent, frankly. And just because you are a bigger, maybe there are many podcasts under your umbrella. I I think it would be amazing if you talked about, like, where you got your money in order to expand and how you make hiring decisions and how you make decisions about which podcasts to add to your stable and things like that that um, are not part of our business model. So, we you know, we don't take investment. We're but one podcast. You know, all of these things we're not talking about because we don't do them. But more talking about all of this. That's what I have to say. When Amina's talking about professionalization or what people who haven't yet launched a show are coming to pre-launch with, we're talking about trailer, slide decks, clear treatments, long descriptions of episodes, perhaps already have sponsorship lined up, perhaps have any talent already attached to project. Like the new, launching a new podcast industry looks much more like film or a startup than it does a few friends making a creative project. And that's not to say you can't make creative projects, but the model that we're talking about of advertising against a podcast with a sizable enough audience to do that, there is such a cottage industry of how you do that now that really is much more like the season one of startup version than mm. what we did and what you hear us talk about on these episodes. Right. Great example of early transparency. Yeah. In on that front. Yeah, we're basically relics now. I think that's the theme. It's like like our model is is no longer operable. The model of how we took what was a kind of fun side project and made it a business is really not um a path any of us would ethically recommend to someone today. It's and really like, hard to iterate yeah. in public the way that we did. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that is such a kind way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. A public iteration. Charge me. I'm guilty. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me. You'll be happy to know, Gina, that we had a conundrum where we almost had to start another LLC <laughs> because of the book. <laughs> and that's and that's where I put my foot down. I was like, no, no more. I know. When you're talking about how many LLCs, I was like, the, your LLC list is like the new how many domains are you squatting? Mm -hmm. How many social accounts are you squatting? So how do we balance 
the work we do for CYG, each of us, with the other work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, this is part of our annual retreat every year. Um, How does CYG further our three sets of distinct professional goals? Yeah, and (laughs) since the last time we talked, I think um, CYG has been, like, my steady. It's like my rock. And then other podcasts come in and out of my life that I produce independently and usually more as a service provider. So it's been a really cool launching point for me to have this as both a regular gig and just something that I have that sense of ownership in and then other things can be a huge range of things. Also, I've started doing more consulting since the last time we talked. There's just so many quirks about podcasting from the technical to the editorial to all of this. How do you market? How do you land? How do you make money? I really enjoy like, oh, yeah, sure. You can pay me to get some advice. That's cool. Like, we'll just hang out and talk about your show. And the people who come to me seeking advice now, like Amina was saying, are super professionalized, really do come with, here's a full treatment. Here's a full season. So that's kind of where my work has landed. I mean, and also since the last time we've done this, you have incorporated. I don't think you were. Yeah. Were you incorporated last time? We No. I think no. you No, I wasn't. Yeah. Yes. Welcome to the LLC to my name. <laughs> and, and speaking of professionalizing and also yeah. the gorgeous GinaDelvac.com was not oh, yet launched. thank you. <laughs> thank you. I feel like it's gotten enough shine at this point. <laughs> GinaDelvac.com there is, never is my enough best contribution yeah. to this entire podcast enterprise. Honestly, <laughs> you know, it just felt like something was out of alignment before it existed and now everything is right in the world except for the fact uh, Aminatuso.com, coming to you Q3 2019. Every morning I wake up, I take that first sip of coffee, and I type in <laughs> www.aminatuso.com, and I use the second sip to steal myself for the day when I don't find anything. Listen, it's on my roadmap for 2019. The reason that I have not had a website for so long is... Like, it's not an accident. It's really because I didn't want, I didn't, there are decisions that I don't want to make. And having a website is like having your resume in public. And I don't, like, I don't have a LinkedIn for a reason. That's also the same reason I don't have a website. Cultivate Uh, the mystery. But I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Not not audio friendly. I'm just shaking my head over I, here. Listen, <laughs> I'm emotionally working on it. Also, I'm really mad that GinaDelvac.com beat now, you. No, I'm not mad that it beat me. I'm just. I wanted it to have taken longer. Because mm. <laughs> I was like, this is where How I'm hiding. How much longer could it have taken? <laughs> wow, Until Q3 2019, <laughs> Gina, when I get my shit together. This is where the family falls apart. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. I, you know, like, I had a very weird 2019, 2018 in the sense that I, like, didn't, like, work was work was weird because I had cancer. Um, I love saying that. I had cancer. It's always weird. Like, from a work perspective, everything was weird. Like, I just, I don't actually know how I would have done last year if I was not a self-employed person. I truly, like, I think about it sometimes. I'm like, whoa. I guess they have, like, medical leave policies and stuff at places. But, you know, I, like, I don't trust those. Anyway. <laughs> As my own boss and also as a, as a colleague of the two of you, I was able to have enough leeway that it wasn't a complete disaster that I did not work for the first six months of the year. I contributed a little bit to this show, not as much as I do, but also, you know, like I had a lot of money saved and I had a lot of flexibility. And so from like a financial perspective, I think that by the end of the year, 
it evened out in the sense where like I did not make the bulk of my money doing CYG stuff, which I, is has been true like all five years, but it was a bigger piece of the pie than it had been before. Yeah, so 2018 is something that I'm like, that's like it was just a weird year and I can't draw a lot of learnings from it except for if you're going to get sick, make sure that your coworkers love you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that really helps. It really <laughs> helps. But other than that, you know, I think... I, I'm still in a place where I, like, every day I wake up and I'm just like, what do I do? What do I actually do? And the thing is true. You yeah, mean, like, your to-do list? That's the tough <laughs> to-do list. Like, my, you know, I don't, I don't know. I'm just like, I don't. Um, I'm just I? in this very, I'm at this very weird intersection of, you know, like, the new kind of worker. Like, what do I do is not an anxiety about, like, not having work. I'm like, I actually have a ton of work. I have a, I have a ton of work that pays me. I'm really lucky to have that. I just think that what is going on is that, like, it doesn't all fit under a neat umbrella. One of the things that I'm doing is that I'm writing a book with Anne. And that is, like, that is very much, like, a lot of real work, mm-hmm. you know? And it's also a very kind of, uh, you know, it's a very kind of rewarding work. Like, the paycheck was lit. Like, thank you. That's one thing that I'm doing. I moderate a lot of um, a lot of public conversations. And that is one income stream that I have. I do... You know, like last year did some spawn con. Like that is a weird thing also. And I do this podcast and I did like a tiny amount of consulting, not as much as I used to. All of this to say that there are like a lot of nebulous work forces oh at my play. God, I see a clear through line in all of your work. Uh, what's the clear through line, Anne? You you create and facilitate conversations about the most important things happening in the world right now. Great, that's going on the website. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's like what you do. I mean, like you, you. I mean, I don't so know how you to put tell that you. In, I'm so glad you put that. Uh, you said it on the show so that I can rewind and listen to it. I learned by Anne Friedman. <laughs> right. Yeah, you coined by Anne Friedman. Me directly in the tagline of your website. You get five percent. Um, <laughs> we'll take it. Yes. Careful, this is being recorded. I mean, um, for real. I'm like, this is not a legally binding contract. Show up in also, court someday. Also, I would happily give you five percent. Um, the love of my life. Um, so anyway, all of, all of this to say that when I think about, you know, like CYG is something that I'm super excited to show up for every day. It is also like a huge, it's a huge part of my work, but I think that more than anything, it has, it's become like less work and more of a platform, you know, in the sense where the stuff that we work on behind the scenes and the the distribution of labor on on our team is like, some of that stuff is like pretty set. Conversations with advertisers and partners, like that happens all of the time. Like figuring out these like new partnerships in the spawn that we're doing, like that happens all the time. Like Gina editing the show, that happens all, like that stuff, like we know how to do. It's more of a matter of like volume and consistency than scrambling for making opportunities happen. So when I think mostly about like where the show fits in my work life, I was like, oh, it's it's an opportunity to it's like more an opportunity to talk about the things that I care about, right? And um, and as Gina says, iterate in public. <laughs> so it, um, you know, still a delight, still here. Uh, let's keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think CYG is still an important piece of what is like a very distributed income pie for me, which is to say there's nothing that's like more than... of my income, like no one thing that I do. And um, so CYG is an important piece of that. It is still business for me, definitely. 
More than anything, I think it has been an important place to experiment, kind of like you were saying, the fact that it's a platform. Experiment with things that I want to write more about on my own or skills I want to learn, projects that I want to do that don't fit within what we do at CYG. It's been so great for all of that stuff. That's one reason why I would say to the hypothetical person who is maybe starting a just creative project podcast, not like a full business presentation deck, why it's still perhaps worth it. Because even if our listener numbers significantly shrank, which, you know, I hope that doesn't happen, but even if it did, I still think that there would be a value just on a personal career development yeah, on that level. And and the level where we all have ownership in a thing that we get to experiment with. Like, that is something that I think really sets the three of us apart from people who are um, freelancers, who aren't, you know, who aren't self-employed, but are just, like, having to sell their ideas to other people. And having to pour their ideas into the mold of what someone else is willing to take, right? Yeah. We get to set our own molds. Yeah, I love that we make the molds, and I love that if one of us really wants to do something, we don't really have to sell it. Like, the other two will be like, fine, if you really want to do it, go for it. You're the best, and I love you so much. That's the the, the baseline. I want 5%. Thank you. I love you. <laughs> Thank you. A main reason why we wanted to revisit our businesswoman special this week is because of some other businesswomen we love, our pals Claire Mazur and Erica Cerullo of Of A Kind, who have a brand new book out called Workwife. I talked to Claire and Erica a while back about their book, you know, and about their partnership, really, and what they have learned talking to other women who are in partnership with other women. Like us. Uh, <laughs> like us. It made me like feel very good about a lot of choices that we've made. It's such a reminder that it's so powerful when women find a way to work together and that there is really a path forward for like a better kind of leadership and a better kind of business when, um, when we figure that out. Here's Claire and Erica. Hi, Claire and Erica. Hi, Amina. You're our model for how to be besties. So we oh, always look to you. Back at you. You guys are. Two-way street. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm excited that your book is out in the world. It feels like it's been a long time coming. At least eight years coming yeah. at this point. <laughs> the thing we got really excited about was telling all of these other women's stories, like yours and Anne and Gina's. And the other thing I think when we started is we realized that there was kind of this confluence of cultural events coming together where suddenly the idea that you know, women had to like be catty and bitchy and hate each other. It had kind of jumped the shark. We were a little bit past that. And it's like very jumping off your shine theory stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and then also the fact that finally, there's room for more than one woman at the top. Women aren't competing in a company for the single role that is designated or allotted for women. Mm -hmm. So finally there's room for women to bring each other up and build each other up and actually work together to start businesses, to run businesses, to make change in the middle of a company, to you know be assistants together like you see on the bold type or something. Yeah. And I mean, the thing about this also that is so comforting is that 
one, like, we didn't invent that. You know, like, <laughs> women, women of our generation didn't invent, like, no. oh, I like my coworker who's a yeah. woman. I want to be her friend. She has cool pants. I would like <laughs> to dress like her. So, no, women have actually been doing this for mm. a long time. And you both made, like, really good choices, I think, about, you know, showcasing a range of, um, of women in the book. It's not just, you know, cool New York ladies yeah. <laughs> who, you know, who run cool New York businesses. There's, like, a range of ages and causes and... And the kinds of businesses, like some people are nonprofits, some people, you know, are entrepreneurs. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the choices that you made around that. <laughs> There's just a straight up business case. If you're going to make, try to make a case for something being a phenomenon, you can't all be, you know, women in their 20s in New York, right? That <laughs> doesn't prove anything. But it was just exciting to us to explore different industries and different age ranges and different demographics. And one of our favorite um, duos is our, the women behind Higher Standard Packaging, which is a... Oh my God, we're obsessed with them. They're incredible. They're a cannabis packaging company in oh Colorado. They've been friends for 40 years. They met on a St. Patrick's Day parade float. I mean, amateur drinking holidays (laughs) where you meet all your best friends. But it's like, these women are wise. They have something to teach us. And they they were the ones who, who, who said, when we started our business, we made a promise to ourselves, the minute the friendship starts to go south, the business goes out the window. And that's a promise we've kept and we've never had to like, you know, explore it, but that the friendship always comes first. And those were some of the most potent examples of like what it means to be a work wife. Well, and like, you know, that, that might not be the right answer for everybody either, which has also been interesting. And that made sense for them, but they have been friends for 40 years and they both had careers prior to starting this company. They came out of retirement, like literally to do this. Barbara Diner and Deb Baker and Deb had been a teacher and uh, Barbara had been a marketing executive and they sort of realized this opportunity living in Denver and decided to explore it and had never done anything in this space before and had never worked together before. I would say that like my work friendship with Anne and Gina kind of fell naturally Mm -hmm. in the sense that we like all the same stuff. We like hanging out together. We really liked each other. And also, we didn't realize that what we were doing was work. I think that <laughs> that's the, you know, that's yeah. the secret of the Call Your Girlfriend yeah. recipe. Because it was that way, it was it felt a little more natural and a little easier to fall into. I don't know that I've been in a partnership where, you know, we both looked at each other and were like, okay, we we are setting out to do uh, a business. Like, this is the venture that we're going on. Or certainly yeah. people that I wasn't, like, specifically very close to first. Right. Well, we had the same experience, I think, that you and Anne and Gina had where, you know, we started exploring this and it felt more like an extracurricular activity, mm-hmm. like something we were doing and, like, kind of feeling out and it was fun and it was an interesting thing to work on together. And it wasn't until we'd been doing it for seven months, six months, that we'd had the conversation that, like, okay, if we're going to actually pursue this, we have to quit our jobs and do this. Yeah. Um, and I remember that conversation that we had when it was like a Sunday night, I was flying back from a photo shoot and I was at LAX and uh, I remember like walking around the airport, like pacing and kind of shaking, being like, oh my God, is this like really something we're going to do? Was it like an immediate yes, like you knew you were going to do that or did you have to like think about it a lot in a larger context? I think about, I think the only thing I personally had to think about in a larger context was whether I was up for giving up the career that I thought I had wanted because I had moved to New York to work in magazines and that was my sort of like dream route. But the idea of working with Claire was like always like a big yes. Mm -hmm. It was more of just like, can I say bye to this thing that I thought was the thing? Yeah. What about you, Claire? I think for me, I had less attachment to my career at that point and I think more naivete too. Um, So I was very much like, 
I'm ready to do this, let's go. I just sort of need someone to give me not the permission, but the sort of like belief that this is the right thing. Like I need the endorsement, but it's funny because people do say like, how did you know that Erica was the right person? Or like, you know, how did you guys make that decision? And that was never a question. It was like, the idea came up. There was only one person to whom like I wanted to talk to. We would even have this conversation with. Yeah. And it just felt very natural. It was just like, oh, this, this is the nature of our friendship. Like we both get excited about these same types of ideas and these same types of projects. So of course, like this conversation would happen and this project would, would go in this direction. But I mean, some of it is also like your work ethic. Like we watch you guys work. Your work ethic is legendary. Honestly, there's like no bigger compliment (laughs) than you saying that. And I repeat repeat it in my head sometimes. I'm like, Amina thinks your work ethic is legendary. (laughs) Because you run a ginormous profitable business. Nothing makes me feel (laughs) better than that. I, I think I, I think I'm done now that you've said that. Um, right, but I think that I think the reason that I say that is because it's fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. Because you say like this person's my friend. We have the same ideas. We we like the same things. But I think that another thing that is going on here that we don't really discuss a lot in you know like female friendship narratives is that women are in love with how other women work. Yeah. You know, like... A hundred percent. When Anne says to me, I love your brain, my entire body melts. <laughs> you know, I was like, this... I was like, this is as close to, like, friend orgasm that yeah. you can get. Is like, another woman who, like, validates your, like, professional... Your professionalism. And Gina, when we were on tour last time, said, it was, you know, it's like, tour is always fascinating because it's just like go, go, go at all times and so many things go wrong and you watch everybody yeah. juggle things at the same time and Gina said she was like you know the reason we're friends and we work together is because we are all the girls that in high school we would do the group project for everyone Yeah, so it's good to work with the same people. I think those are good people yeah. to start a business with right. yeah. I think yeah. those are great people to start a business absolutely. with absolutely I also just think what happens and I, this is something we talk about in the book is when you put more than one of those women together in a room then you're also adding accountability into the mix. And Mm -hmm. so then everybody levels up. And it's like you're all holding each other to each other's standards. And I think that's part of what, like, delights me so much about you calling my work ethic legendary is that I don't actually think it is, but I just think it's gotten that way because I'm accountable to Erica and she has a legendary work ethic. Or just, like, we both have different expectations, you know? Like, it's, like, Er Erica's, like, a really hard worker and I'm more of, like, maybe, like, a perfectionist or something. So then it's, like, you put those two things together and then it's, Mm -hmm. like, you have something really special and we do... It's partially, I I do think it's something a little bit being women. I also think it's just the friendship layer to it. But it's like Mm -hmm. I feel really responsible to her and I feel like I'm representing her. So I want to represent her standards too and meet those. Another group of women we interviewed for the book, um, the three women behind the law firm KMR in Chicago, there's a line in one of the interviews (laughs) that is, I just live not to embarrass them. Yeah. Oh my God, I think that (laughs) all the time. That just felt so like totally. And that will put you on such a high playing field if you're in the room with the right women. And these are always things that they say, like, this is how you're supposed to pick a partner or Mm -hmm. you're supposed, you know, like a romantic partner or whatever. And I was like, this is how you pick friends, too. Mm -hmm. You know, like you care about how they work and you care about their standards and you care about not embarrassing them at all times. Exactly. I also think around the time when we started the business, we were maybe a little bit subconsciously looking for relationships like those in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was this business we were obsessed with on the Lower East Side called Sorella. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. And they were work wives. There was this idea of like, oh, that's so cool that they did this thing together. And I remember just like thinking about you that. You get to work with your friends. Yeah. And I think that there are more and more examples of women like that in the mm-hmm. world. And one of the things we wanted to do with the book was surface it and just make it, you know, more obvious. Because I think 
Women's business stories don't get told as much, especially women who maybe came to came to power like yeah. 20 years ago or something. Mm-hmm. There's just so many stories that don't get told. You know, and I love that you ask so much of the origins of so many of these businesses and how they think about it because, and this is a little different for, I would say like for us, but for a lot of, you know, women who are older, it was also that they didn't have opportunities. Men wouldn't give them money or, no. you know, yes. or... Or the power differential was so much where it's like, well, you know, like working with a man in the business who is the one that holds the money or the power or the connections. Because those women went through that, it we had a larger imagination for the fact that we could do this with other women. Absolutely. And that's not to say that, like, you know, we don't face the challenges of, like, venture capital or whatever. But this is a lane that is very carved. <laughs> like, yes. just finding another woman, this path exists, I don't have to reinvent the wheel and I can just keep doing that. And I'm wondering if there were things that surprised you when you were talking like specifically to to older women about how they chose to do um, their business partnerships. The founders of Hanky Panky, the underpants company. Love. <laughs> um, which, you know, I had no idea before we started working on the book that they they are work wives. It's a women founded business. They produce all in the United States. Like these are all. I, how good do you feel about this business? Mm-hmm. How much more do you want to wear those like thongs? They have found this path for themselves that has been outside of the funding structure. That has been outside of what has traditionally been the model. They haven't shipped their business to overseas or done production in China. Also, neither of them have kids, and they are figuring out how to basically give the business back to. Um, their employees and and thinking about what their legacy means. And I think we just found that a lot of women take alt paths. And not that men don't necessarily, but I think because women haven't necessarily had the same opportunities um, or just have to think about things differently because they're outside of a patriarchal system, they come up with different answers to the questions. They do. I think one of the things that most of the businesses we talked about had in common, but especially the ones run by older women, is that they had mostly taken very independent paths and very much stuck to their guns when it came to how they were going to grow their business. So Killer Films is another example. They're this sort of like legendary, smaller, independent film company. They've made they made Still Alice. They made Carol. They're, they're tough bitches, and they have obviously had to deal with, like, the Hollywood machine, yeah. and to hear them talk about the ways in which they've just, like, elbowed off all of the bullshit um, that comes at women, and especially women in Hollywood, was really inspiring. That was one of those ones where you walk down, and you're like, I want to be them when I grow up. You also talk to women who run nonprofits, mm-hmm. which... Um, that's an area for me that I'm always like, God, the accountability that you need to work with somebody to do good and not necessarily get rich. Um, you know, because I get out of bed because I'm like, Anna and Gina make me money every day. <laughs> I'm like, thank God. You know? So when I think about that, and it's also like such an industry that's ripe for the kind, you know, like for exploiting women, frankly, mm-hmm. and the do-gooder heart that you have. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little about you know some of the stories that you you heard about in nonprofits and how they navigate being work wives. I mean, I think one of the real sort of like work wife moments that came out of a conversation with Radical Monarchs, um, which is actually an organization that you introduced us to. Ah, love the Radical um, Monarchs. In, they do incredible work with young girls um, and have sort of like an uh, alternative take on scouting based on the Girl Scouts model. Um, they have been close friends since graduate school and they talked about a lot about their attitudes towards money and how they have never had a lot as a nonprofit. and then at one point they got this huge very big deal grant and like related to warren buffett kind of grant which always feels (laughs) like uncle warren was involved so that's Uh, great to know daddy warbucks (laughs) love him (laughs) 
And they talked about the struggle to figure out what do we do with this money, and especially when you come from sort of a... When, when you like, come from a mindset of want, right, of not having a lot, those conversations are sometimes even harder because... Well, you get really comfortable pinching pennies, right. and it feels crazy to spend money on things. Yeah. yeah. But they both knew, and they both talked about the fact that I knew where the other one was coming from because I knew her family history and I knew how that shaped her attitude towards money. And that was, again, one of these moments of, like, friendship in the work place means so much because that conversation can happen in a more compassionate and like on a deeper level because you're not it's not just about like looking at the numbers it's like I understand where your point of view is coming from because I know that when you were growing up your parents worked multiple jobs and that that has shaped your attitudes towards finances and that to me just like that sort of thing gives me goosebumps and like that fundamentally changes what it means to be in the workplace when you're having that conversation with someone who understands your background on, and your like emotions on a totally different level than just like being a colleague. Yeah. Um, the founders of Radical Monarchs, at least, prioritize self-care maybe more mm-hmm. than any of the other founders that we talked with and just really check in on each other on a like, how are you doing? Are you eating? Are you sleeping level? Because I think when you work in a, a realm like this, you are putting so much of yourself into mm-hmm. it and not necessarily getting it out in, in terms of like just money flowing into the bank. So I think they make sure to really take care of each other and take care of themselves. I love that. Um, What would you say, like, across talking to all of these women, did you find was, like, a good recipe for being a good work wife? I mean, I think for me, one of the things is just acknowledging friendship. And a lot of people talk about times where the friendship gets buried, right? Because work Mm -hmm. is so intense and you think, well, we see each other all the time. Why would we need to, like, focus on the friendship? hearing the various points at which women realized they had to make a distinction and just be friends in one moment versus being colleagues, those are really powerful moments. And obviously I think it's the ones where you can be both, where you get sort of the most um, exciting and sort of like novel outcomes. But I think that was a theme that kept coming up is like, you know, we, we have to be friends too. And it's not that different from a romantic relationship in that way where people carve out date night or whatever, right? Because yeah, you might have be sitting across from someone every morning having coffee or you might be putting the kids to bed together or whatever, but is that real time? Just because you're mm-hmm. working across from someone or just because you're in meetings with them doesn't mean you're actually getting FaceTime. And so carving out time to maybe get a coffee or a manicure or to go on a walk is healthy. Yeah. The flip side is true too that I think sometimes it can be easy to forget to do the really common just like workplace practices and it still stuns me between me and Erica how like how recently we started having regular (laughs) check-ins with like a recurring agenda, which is something we would have been doing with the people we manage for years. Like we would never think of not having that sort of a thing because we see each other so much, because we talk so much and we're such close friends, we well, forget to implement those there's always going to be time. Yeah. You're like, oh, we're, we're always talking. We're just like, we're always slacking. We're always texting. We're always on email. Like, mm-hmm. We're always doing all of these mm-hmm. things. Why would we need to set aside an hour to do it? Right. It's like creating the structure. It's like you have to acknowledge that you are colleagues, but you are also friends. And yep. both of those things need boundaries and structures around them. And exactly. they take work. Then. I mean, you know, we go to like a, a management coach who's basically yeah. a couples counselor. <laughs> Love it. I mean, it's like you you have to you have to make that work. Um, did you talk to any women who had like very formal arrangements? You know, like we 
you know, I feel that like in our business, we like did a handshake at the bank and we hugged, you know, and we were like, see you on the couch when we get stoned later. <laughs> there was not a thing. But I imagine that like, you know, the, like the lawyer ladies, they probably have some sort of prenup. <laughs> I, I trust that the lawyers have a prenup. I also think, you know, Food 52 at this point um, is a very big business and has a ton of employees, That's has raised 52. a lot of venture capital. And I think, you know, that was a very much, we are going to set out, we're going to do this, we are going to raise money and we are going to get this off the ground kind well, of relationship. And interestingly, the, one of the ones that we do know that's the most detailed is the uh, the Fortunato twins who have Lizzie Fortunato's uh, handbag and accessory line. Love those accessories. <laughs> and their partnership agreement is so detailed. And it was, of course, their mother who was like, you have to do it this way. Because they're sisters. <laughs> I will not have a twin breakup over this. Yeah. You will figure this out. You will talk to a lawyer. You will have this on paper because I will not be dealing with this. So, wow, Mama Fortunato, yeah, the, the real mogul behind yeah. the like. So she came in, and so they have it like way more detailed than exists between like me and Erica or any of the other ones we know. Where it's like, if it's a design decision, then that they are disagreeing over, then Lizzie gets to call, and if it's a business decision, then Catherine gets to make the call. And if and they pick three mediators if there's like a if there's a total issue that they can't solve, and they and I think in part because they're twins and because well, there was so the stakes were so high. Exactly, yeah. the stakes can't are so high. No, yeah. no cannot, breakups there. Can you imagine yeah. ghosting your twin? <laughs> <It's> tough. <laughs> yeah. That is yeah. just, your mom's going to have to have two Thanksgivings. <laughs> I do not think so. Man, this makes me, it just makes me so happy, you know, on so many levels that this book exists. Like, on the level of, you know, like, business school case studies. Like, mm -hmm. thank God. Nobody will ever say, like, women don't know how to work together. Women don't have profitable business. It's like, hi, there's an entire book of them. <laughs> Read Work Wives. And also just, like, on the personal level of, again, like, a book that I wish was in the world when, you know, like, maybe when I was a teen or even when I was in college or fresh out of college trying to mm -hmm. model this work of what does my life look like if I want to work with people that I love and figure out a path for us? And yeah. it turns out that women have been doing this forever. Yeah. Yes, you know? no, it's Absolutely. true. And I mean, I think the flip side of it is, you know, we it's written so much with so much in mind of like in, hoping to inspire other women to do this. But the other side of it, too, is that we hope that in the big corporations where you're not getting to choose who you want to work with, that the sort of habits and practices that women like us have developed start to seep in mm -hmm. and that you see people valuing emotional intimacy in the workplace and you see people adapting things like at Food 52, Amanda Hesser, while Meryl Stubbs was on maternity leave, would send her a weekly update every week. So just to keep her in the loop so that when she came back to work, that life wasn't all of a sudden like, oh my God, I have to catch up on three months of things I didn't know yeah. happened. And that's the sort of thing that like, Amanda did because she's a friend and because she understood what Meryl needed in that situation. But like, these are the sorts of things that you could adapt in big, more sort of traditional corporate environments that are based on, you know, just like caring about people and wanting to right. help them. And also women in corporate environments, like some of them do it already. And, mm -hmm. but you know, this idea of like banding together yeah, exactly. is how all your voices get heard. You know, mm -hmm. that famous example of in the Obama White House how all the women would amplify each other in meetings when the president yes, was there, right? Exactly. And just, we and we have like talked about this so much and I am so happy when I hear other people co-opted. It's like, no, you're always stronger when there's more yes, of you. Exactly. So whether you're like work wives in, you know, you own your business together, if you work with another woman that you, you know, like that you, you can like, have, that you jibe with. Right. Yeah. You can have friendly feelings towards her, you know, and also there's there's just like more place to be friends at work yeah. and to look at people and, you know, to I don't know. I find that like when I when I work with people that I'm friends with, 
I have so much more compassion for yes. everything because of what you were talking about, the emotional intelligence of you see them as a full person. Yes. And, and you know as, their life. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, and there are also multiple duos and trios in the book who started off working together and then became friends and then, you know, yeah. then chose to work together. Mm -hmm. um, I also think, coming back to the point you were saying about, you know, the way that women can start making these changes in an environment, what we started to think about a lot um, as we were writing this, especially as all of the, like, Me Too things started surfacing right as we were finishing our first draft, um, was just that we don't actually as a society know what a matriarchal workplace looks like, like writ large, yeah. and what might that, what shape might that take? Um, and I think these, that women being in charge and women starting to band together and groups of women creating those cultures will allow us to, 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 have, to actualize that. I'm so excited for both of you. I'm gonna be buying uh, multiple copies for all my ladies. Do it. Check out Workwife, The Power of Female Friendship to Drive Successful Businesses, wherever you buy your books. And I'll see you on the internet. See you on the internet, Gina. See you on the internet. <laughs> you can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download the show anywhere you listen to your faves or on Apple Podcasts, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at CallYRGF. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our associate producer is Destry Maria Sibley. This podcast is produced by Gina Dalvac.